I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right. Well, welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. It is great to have you all with us. Seth, it's great to see you today, my friend. Good to see you as well, Luke. Yeah, we uh, didn't have Taylor Swift with us. That was just a one-time thing. Uh, have you been able to secure tickets to the Taylor Swift concert? She's coming to town, I heard. The answer is no, despite waiting for six hours in an online queue. Did you really? Six hours. Yeah. You're such a Swifty. I love it. You know, it's amazing. Now I'm a bitter one. So you waited for six hours, and then it was like, sorry. I signed up for the pre-Ultra Taylor Swift fan club early tickets release. Okay. Which was a lie. <laughs> I'm sure some fans got <laughs> tickets early. Just I'm not sure you. I'm sure some people... That God loves more than me got tickets. <laughs> so you really seriously waited and just, it's like, hey, Bobcast, nothing. Well, I didn't Did they just say just sorry. Wait. I was in an online thing. I was like waiting to go. And then it was my turn to go on and said sold out. Oh, man. Like, why did I sign up for the early Swift fan club release ultra package, whatever it was called? I forget. Wow. And then I logged in on uh, Friday to get like the real ones, like the general release, and they're sold out too. Okay. But the good the news is, is I can buy them now, like, resale for, like, $650. Yeah, you could, you know, sell one of your children and get some tickets to Taylor sell Swift. Sell both of my children <laughs> and get Taylor Swift tickets or, like, some kidneys or... Okay. So, anyway. So, you don't get to see them live, but it is her music and especially her uh, recent hit that has got us talking about this uh, stuff we're talking about. Uh, last episode, if you weren't with us last time... Make sure you check out the last episode. And then uh, for the next couple episodes, we're going to be talking about the doctrines of the Reformation, the doctrines of grace, the history of the Reformation, because of the lyric in which song is it by her? Antihero, where she says, hi, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. Yeah. And that whole I'm the problem, it's me, is I just think kind of bedrock, uh, a belief you have to have before you even become a Christian. Yeah. And it spirals into we've been talking about doing a doctrines of grace series for a while and i thought now's a good time yeah yeah so that idea that if if you're the problem it's you then you really can't be your own savior someone something else has to save you and so we talked a little bit about that last time on the anti-hero episode about the five solas of the reformation today we're getting more into the doctrines of grace so um why don't you uh kick us off where where are we going to start yeah so last time we talked about the five solas which are largely about why another human, especially like the the Roman church, can't be our salvation. Uh, we can't trust in priests or in Mary or in uh, a religious establishment. So it's not just I'm the problem, it's me, but it's humanity as a whole is the problem. So we can't yeah. trust in humans, even necessarily as the means of our salvation. Uh, but this is more about, uh, not necessarily, to be clear, don't trust humans. That's what that was last time. This is more about, to be clear, you must only trust God because we are... Um, utterly erratically or totally depraved and so okay. god has to give us new hearts so we begin the doctrines of grace with some bad news yes that's how it starts off so traditionally there's this thing called tulip t-u-l-i-p total depravity unconditional election limited atonement irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints and so that spells out the five points t-u-l-i-p uh, we are uh, using those as kind of helpful contours but for a variety of reasons, I think those labels are misleading or misguiding and lead mm. people to misunderstanding what a like a broader, more biblical uh, understanding of the Reformation doctrines were. Yeah, and our concern really isn't that people understand the doctrines of grace or 
the five points of Calvinism or Tulip, the way that's, we want to understand the biblical truth about how do we get saved? How do we experience relationship with God? What takes place that allows that to happen? Yeah, our goal is not that people would understand Calvinism per se or Reformed theology per se, but they'd understand the Bible. Yeah. And and that's really the goal here. And so it's even important to understand that Calvin did not come up with the five points of Calvinism. Okay. Like he, that wasn't his goal either. So and he, when we say five points of Calvinism, doctrines of grace, Reformed theology, these are all more or less synonyms. Yeah, they're Venn diagrams that overlap a ton, yeah. and depending on who you ask, they might disagree with that. But uh, I don't really care. We're, it's easier. But, but for it's, yeah. how we're going to talk about it. We're going yeah. to kind of use those interchangeably almost. Yeah, so basically what you have is you have, in the Reformation, you have the five solas as a means of differentiating a church from Romanism, Roman Catholicism. Then within within Protestantism, you have uh, these kind of streams developing, and a couple of generations after Calvin, you have some of Calvin's fo- followers trying to clearly articulate why they're uh, differentiating themselves from other Protestants. And this is one of the... Great sins of Protestantism is the eternal splintering into varieties of sects and sectors. Is is we you begin with like this differentiation from Rome, trying to get back to biblical theology, but then you end up dividing from everyone. That's part of the reason why there's I don't know how many denominations, a hundred thousand or something like that, is this kind of eternal splintering. And so what we're talking about today is actually like the th- third splintering. First you have the East-West splintering, then you have the Roman Protestant splintering, then you have the Calvinist Arminian splintering. So we're talking about... Well, I think you could argue that the the early splinterings are of much more substantial importance than lots of later splintering, right? I mean, that's really the problem is we end up splintering over a lot of dumb stuff. Yes. But these first few splinters are pretty important. Yeah, they're substantial. And in the early, early church, you're splintering over heresy, capital H. Is Jesus fully God or not? Those don't feel like splinterings as much as stamping out heresy. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas you get in like the Roman Protestant divide and you're splinting, spl- like you're splintering over or dividing over um, unbiblical views of salvation and, and regeneration and the means of grace and the control of a centralized religious system. And here you have uh, splintering over what I would say is like the extent to which grace is responsible for salvation, which okay. is also significant. Yeah, we had talked about that last time. That was one of the five solas was solo gratia. Yeah. Yeah. So here we're talking about how sinful are we? There's a question. Are we all the way bad? Are we mostly bad? Or are we good? Or are we good? Um, how how deep does the sin go? How problematic is it? We talk in here all the time about these two tensions that humans are uh, from birth, two things simultaneously, that they are the image of God. Not that they have it or they possess it, or they, but they are it. So humans have tremendous value and capacity unto themselves. And at the same time, they are depraved. They are sinners. They are selfishly inclined. Augustine talks about the inward curve. They're curved inward onto themselves. And so that's one of the reasons why non-Christians and Christians together can uh, make cultural goods that are not all bad. You know, that's why you don't have to be a Christian to do good things. Is you're, It's still the image of God despite being like selfishly inclined or, or depraved. And so we know that we're not uh, bad all the way, as though every person is as bad as they could be. There's very few people in the world, in his world history, who you'd say, they're as bad as you could be. You know, so the classic... Well, even then, you kind of go, and they could probably still be worse. Yeah, even Hitler, it's like he could have kicked one more puppy. You know what I mean? Like there's, right. He didn't do evil every chance he got. He did a lot of evil, 
but it wasn't every chance he got. And so there's recognition that nobody is as bad as he possibly could be, but everybody is fundamentally depraved. And so this is what Calvinists have called the doctrine of total depravity, Mm -hmm. what others have called pervasive depravity. uh, And what you would like to call what? I, I think it's most clear to refer to it as total inability. Okay. Or inability. So I would call this the doctrine of inability because that's really the heart of this is that we are sinful to the degree that we cannot save ourselves or give ourselves new hearts, that we can't drum up faith of some free choice. We can't create in ourselves the conditions of salvation. And so that's the real heart behind it, this doctrine. So, so it's less about am I as bad as I could be and more about am I as bad off as I could be? Yeah, when Jesus says repent and believe, do I have it in myself to be able to do that by myself? Yeah. Like, can I just repent and believe? Or do I need God to even be able to repent and believe? So, Because I'm so unable to do anything morally good before God, I, I might need help. Or am I like, no, I'm kind of able. I'm a little bit able. I'm not totally depraved. I'm a, I'm a little bit unable. I'm a little bit depraved. Yeah, am, am I inhibited by sin, or am I bound by sin? Yeah, in the classic words of Princess Bride, am I dead, or am I mostly dead? Yeah, I actually have a quote here from that. <laughs> so Miracle Man Max, in the, in, the, in the great film, it's not even a movie, it's a film. <laughs> Would you agree? Is, it a, is, is a Princess Bride a film or a movie? It's a cult classic film cult movie. Classic it's film. amazing, it's great. Yeah, so the guy, they think he's dead. They take him to Miracle Man Max, who's kind of a wacko. <laughs> And he says, ah, it just so happens your friend here is just mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. All dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. Go through their clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> right. So, ah, he's, not most, he's only mostly dead. He's not all dead. And yeah. So, spiritually speaking, are we mostly dead or are we all dead? And we're going to argue that we are not mostly dead. We are all dead. In terms of our, especially with regards to, or exclusively with regards to, our capacity to produce faith within ourselves and repent within ourselves, that we actually need external push to drum up or connect with that faith. Okay. So uh, what we get here is, um, first I want to start with the gravity of Adam's sin, or what we call original sin. Like, how bad was the original sin? So... Uh, we have first a warning. So God commanded the man, saying, "Do not eat of the tree of this garden. Uh, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall eat it. For the day you eat it, you shall surely die." That's the threat. That's the warning. Um, then what happens? They eat it, and um, then there's this punishment. They have to leave the garden, and the result is what Romans five talks about. This is also one of the reasons why I think you need to believe in a literal Adam. Uh, is this Romans five argument is just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's Romans 6.23, Romans 5.12. This, this Adam-centric view is that God said, eat this and you will die. And he obviously doesn't physically die, so God must have had something else in mind when he meant die. I do think that there is included in that the decay and the effect of sin, hmm. which leads to physical death. But immediately there's a spiritual death, um, the hardening of the heart, the deadening of the soul, uh, the callousing of the spiritual fibers, and it's a spiritual death. And the death, the wages of that sin is is death. And so because of Adam's sin and because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. So I think there's both, we're dead in Adam and we're dead in herself. And so 
the result of this is all humans um, are dead. So Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. So all people sin, Romans 3, 10 and 12 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. So this idea of seeking after God, that's no one on their own seeks after God. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together become worthless, but no one does good, not even one. And so even that in Romans 3, this idea of humans being worthless, uh, it, it's it's taking from a, a Hebrew term, Belial. We saw it a couple times in First Second Samuel, our teaching series, we have these worthless men. Right, yeah. It doesn't mean that they're like not in God's image and therefore not valuable in in that regard, but it means that they don't contribute anything. And so mm. they're these are sociologically they're non-contributors to society. That's yeah. the worthless men, the sure. sons of Belial. Spiritually here, Paul's playing on that saying like we don't contribute anything to salvation or the story of redemption. Um with regards to our salvation, we are worthless. We have nothing in our pockets. Mm. It'd be kind of like, you know, I'm a like you're valuable to me, Luke. Right. Oh, thank you. I appreciate Yeah. But if we were trying to uh, win the ultimate Frisbee world championship, yeah, Matthew's way more worth worth. It. So Matthew Browston, who's played the ultimate Frisbee. He's actually played in that. Yeah. World championship. Yeah. Uh, you would not help anybody win that. I would not. That's true. Neither would I. I'd be worthless to that team. You'd mm-hmm. be worthless to that team. Yeah, sure. Even just being a... I can think of a lot of areas in life where I'd be pretty worthless. <laughs> yeah. uh, so could Molly, yeah. <laughs> by the way. Whereas, <laughs> whereas my, my first thought was Matthew would actually contribute something. Sure. You know, he may contribute less than other people uh-huh. who are like ultra professionals, but he would actually have something to contribute. I'd be worthless on that team, and so would you. So people would say, it might be better for you not to be here because we're just going to throw it to you and you're going to drop it. So right, it'd be better for you to not try to contribute. Yeah, to even try. So worthless with regards to being saved by God. Um, it is interesting how just stark the, those words are, right? Death, worthless. Um, right, again, not negating the image of God in us, but but that's a serious word. It's it's not just saying like, hey, you're, uh, on the day you eat of it, you know, things are going to be a bummer. You know, it's like you'll be dead. You know, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians 2, right? All the passages you just read. I mean, those are really stark words. Mm -hmm. And Paul says again in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. So to be dead is to follow the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's like the um, demonic ideologies that rule the spirit of the age, the spirit that's now in work that's in the disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, meaning... Everybody at this church always once dead in our sins, falling spirit of the age, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So all of humanity, uh, children of wrath, dead in trespass and sins, in Adam. Uh, so this is not painting a, a great picture of a capacity to save oneself or to generate up faith. Right. So the question we have to ask is, are we dead or mostly dead? Paul pretty clearly arguing that we are all the way dead okay so what would be some of the you know th- this to me feels like when you understand the doctrines of grace this is one that feels really really important right when i actually first learned the doctrines of grace it was through a sermon series by the founding pastor at redemption uh, gilbert tom schrader and he would actually spend two weeks in the series on this first issue this first point of total depravity or inability because it's kind of like if you if you embrace this 
the rest of it starts to make more sense. If you struggle with this, it's, it's a little bit harder. So let me ask you, what are some of the, as you've interacted with people over this stuff, what are some of the best objections to this or the best kind of, uh, you know, the things you're most sympathetic to when people go like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I struggle with this or with this, or with this. Well, there's two aspects of it. One is the psychological experience of conversion often feels like I made a very real choice. Okay. The preacher said, choose this day whom you'll serve. And I chose God. Yep. What is the deal here? Yeah. So you're saying, how, how, how can you say I was unable to choose God when I remember doing it? I was like, yeah. I know people, right? I was at the Billy Graham rally. Yep. There were 40,000 people there. And they said, come on down if you want to meet your Lord and Savior Jesus. And I said, I want to meet him. And I walked down and I prayed to receive Christ in my life. And mm-hmm. I've been a Christian ever since following him. Okay. A lot of people stay in their seats. I stood up and walked down. So that, that's like one psychological experience yep. of conversion. Feels like I chose. And we will talk more about conversion uh-huh. uh, throughout this conversation. but Yeah, which is legitimate. And I would say you did choose to follow God. Yeah. But I would say something happened before that. And that's what we'll get to here in a minute. The second thing is uh, all these commands in Scripture seem to presume that God thinks people can choose. Hmm. Like, hey, turn back, repent, choose. Follow, like, it, it'd be foolish if I'm trying to talk to my kids and I'm saying, jump, walk, sit, stand, listen, and they're co- incapable of doing it. Yeah. Especially, like, a father in heaven, our God the Father, who's a perfect father. If, if I'm, I could see me being an earthly sinful father, telling Jay to sit and listen, and he's mm-hmm. two and a half and being unable to do it. <laughs> yeah, it makes me think of when I was, you know, just recently coaching girls' flag football, and I had drawn out all these plays, and... uh you know, there were some five and six year old girls on this team. And um, I would literally show them the play. Okay, you're the green dot. Go in where the green line goes. I'd show them the play. And then they'd say, now what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> and after like two weeks of this, I've been going, what do you mean? What do you do? I just showed you. What do you do? You know, and, and Molly was like, hey, honey, a couple of these girls like can't read. They aren't like their brains haven't developed to the point where they can like look at something on a page and and translate that into what that means for them. Like you've got to just physically like move them on the field. Like you can't show them a pick. They're just not able, right? And so yeah, if it, it does feel a bit odd that God is saying, "Hey, run this play, run this play, run this play," and 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 yet we can't, yeah. we can't do it. Yeah, like, and that and that, that almost seems unfair. That's a great illustration because Molly comes to you and is like, "Hey, hey, Luke, you're the problem." Just, you know, <laughs> you know, like right. just you know, this is a your expectations problem. This is not a yeah. these girls' problem. And so, is it okay to say, "Hey, that's not fair of God to do that"? I think that what we got to understand is like the nature of calling and what these different texts are doing. So this this is kind of the big um, issue here. Is we think about two things: there's permission and there's ability, and so. Yeah. In conversion, we have uh, two understandings. One is called the general call, and one is called the internal call. All right. So in in these things correlate. So there's the permission to come. So John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, they gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, mm-hmm. all are welcome. The door is open. Come on through. Anyone is here. Everyone's allowed to come. Everyone's allowed into this party. Please come on inside. And that's amazing news. I mean, that shows you God's heart. That shows you God's desire. That shows you, yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. Yeah. And then three chapters later, Jesus says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Hmm. So 
is Jesus an idiot contradicting himself in three chapters? Is John stupid who's writing down Jesus' words? Yeah. Uh, are they contradicting themselves or are they talking about two different things? And so... Um, so Jesus there is not saying only those who the Father draws have permission. He's saying only those who the Father draws have ability. Yeah, so no one can come. No one has the capacity. So I said, whoever comes, please, come on down. So this is not talking about who's welcome. That's talking about... So you're saying the general call goes out. Hey, anyone can come. And then there's the internal call. And the internal call is the giving of the ability. Yeah, which is the Father drawing. So, okay. so everyone has permission. Not everyone has the ability. And so... We, we see this come up a bunch in just as we're talking about uh, conversion. So general external call or the effectual call or the internal call. So um, the general call is like we understand this as the invitation to all people to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus, uh, which is we see this um, in the whoever comes. Then there's the effectual call or the effective call or the irresistible call or the internal call, or the particular call, is way different people talk about in church history. So, like, for example... So this is, just for frame of reference in this, you know, if we go back to the tulip, now we're talking about the I, right? We started with the T. Yeah. Right? We'll come back in future conversations to the U and the L and the P. You know, we talked about inability. Now we're talking about conversion or irresistible grace or internal calling, those things you just said. Yeah, I think that the order of tulip makes things more confusing. So we're just going to talk about how dead are we and how do we get undead. Yeah, great. That, that's the question. So 1 Corinthians 1, we see we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly of the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of salvation. That's talking about the effective call. Yeah, that's even interesting to me because he's going, we preach Christ crucified. That's general call. Yes. And then the specific call is to those who are called. Kaleo, yes. those who have, you know, had this awakening in their heart. Yeah, so we preach Christ crucified, and it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So the normative experience of hearing Christ crucified is, that's dumb. Yeah. Human sacrifice sounds barbaric. What a pagan, ridiculous thing. But to those who are called, Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And there's some, you're able to see the beauty, you're able to see the means of salvation, you're able to see it. Um, we see this in Acts 16, 14 as well. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Mm. So all these people hear all this preaching, and she had her heart opened by the Lord to pay attention to what was said. And so there's this opening of the heart and that's this internal call. It is the, the to use kind of graphic terms, the heart develops ears. Yeah. Whereas before the heart had closed ears. Uh, and now you're able to hear from the heart and be drawn in. And so those, you asked like what the two big pushbacks are. One yeah. is the psychological experience of conversion. Two is like the commands, the presumption of these things. But it's important for us to understand that salvation is available to all and all have permission to see it. But the miracle of belief um, is something that God has to create. Because without God intervening in that miraculous way, we are totally unable. Yeah. So then we have the question of free will. What about free will? Doesn't God respect our agency? Doesn't God uh, care about the fact that we make choices all the time? And 
That's a fair question. So this really went to me, depends on what you mean by free and what you mean by will. Mm-hmm. So as it is with all um, points. So Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. Um, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will. And they basically, base, they base, hold on, there's a word there. They <laughs> both basically agree with each other, but they're kind of arguing about is the will in bondage or is the will free? And so Martin Luther says this, free will without God's grace is not free will at all, is a permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot turn itself to good. Hmm. So Martin Luther's going to go like, it's free in that it's doing what it wants, but it's not free in that it's bound to do what is sinful or selfish. Yeah. Um, and then Jonathan Edwards said this, the will always chooses according to its strongest inclination at the moment. So this is about desire. So he's arguing that our wanter is broken. Yeah, sure. Our, if our will, our, our heart, our desire maker is disordered, then it's choosing the wrong thing all the time, right? Like this is <clears throat> like the example we've used from time to time. Uh, like my, so my, is if he took a vulture and you put it in the room and in one corner of the room, you put the nicest salad with fruit on top. In the other corner of the room, you put a bowl of uncooked raw beef and said the vulture, you have free choice. <laughs> Whichever you want. Whatever one you want. You can have whatever you want. And the vulture is going to hundred out of hundred times pick the beef uh, one, because beef is better, but mostly <laughs> because the vulture only likes beef, right? Sure. There's, there's that reality there. Yeah, by so, nature, it's, it's a carnivore. Yeah, so its its will is free in that it has a free choice, but its will is bound in that its will is always inclined to the beef. And so it's similar with humans, that our our wills are free in the sense that we have free choices, but our wills are bound in the in the sense that apart from God's intervention of grace— we're going to choose uh, our selfish, inclined way. And again, this doesn't mean that we're incapable of doing good or that we're totally insensitive to all the things of God or that we're not uh, remarkably kind from time to time or or even selfless, but it does mean that we're going to do so on our own terms and our own basis. Yeah. And we're going to uh, be doing it as a means of proving ourselves as good. And so even like the, the self-effort thing. So hmm. so the free will, uh, so we... we uh, one of the things we have in our, we've talked about is like we have real choices or we have a will in bondage. Yeah. And so it depends. Yeah. Grudem, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology talks about that. Perhaps a better way to talk about it is that we have real choices, you know, yes. that our choices are real. They make a difference. They, we will be held accountable for them. Um, we make real choices. The question is, you know, it gets back again to that ability question. So, and it's even like, so the commands in Scripture to choose a stay whom you serve, it's interesting those are always given to God's people. Right. That he has already awakened their heart and their in covenant of grace with them. Mm-hmm. And now as his people, there's this daily like choice we have to make. Like, now will I live into the salvation I have or will I choose my flesh and vice versa? So, uh, Yeah, it's even a bit like in Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone, you know, opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. Well, well, that's Jesus already talking to the church, saying like, hey, you're losing your first love. I want to be in your life. You know, this isn't like, a, hey, come to faith in me. It's like, you already have faith in me, but you're kind of leaving me outside. Bring me in a little more. Yeah. And so it's more of a call to repentance, really, than, uh, it, you know, ongoing repentance rather than an initial repentance. 
Yeah, so the picture we get in Ezekiel 37 of the dry bones, I think is a good example of all the way dead, that we are unable to save ourselves. We are incapacitated with regards to giving ourselves faith and uh, drumming up affection for God. And here's what it says. Uh, So he gives this vision. God gives this vision to Ezekiel. It says, The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he brought me the Spirit, brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. The whole point being, they've been dead a very long time. Yeah. Um, And he said to me, Son of man, who can make these bones live? Or Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered him, O Lord God, you know. Meaning, we should understand ourselves to be the valley of dry bones that have been dead for a long time, that have no shot at in bringing ourselves back together. And so that brings us to the idea of conversion or irresistible grace. And so I don't like the term irresistible grace because obviously we resist grace all the time. (laughs) Right, sure. So it is clearly resistible. Uh, The idea behind it is that it's irresistible because our resistance is overcome ultimately by God. Yeah. So we want to resist grace by earning salvation ourselves. We resist grace by hardening ourselves to the things of God. And God ultimately does overcome that resistance. And so in that sense, it's irresistible. Yeah, he is the one, as Jesus said, you mentioned a minute ago, who draws us, right? And I know that that word draw is the same word that's used in other parts of Scripture to describe someone being dragged into court, right? So the Lord ultimately does drag us. He draws us. He overpowers our our broken wanter and gives us a new heart. Yeah, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, description of his conversion, he says this, which I think is pretty funny. He says, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like his experience of being an atheist philosopher, uh, English literary critic for so long, was like, I was not interested in having a Lord. I'm not, it's like the mouse looking for the cat is ridiculous, you know. Sure. And, and, but he gets caught by God, is that's the way he describes it. And I think that's a really biblical understanding is that we, by nature, resist that. So John Piper said it like this, Irresistible grace refers to the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our heart and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. And that is just stinking good news. Mm, yeah. That there's rebellion in my heart, rebellion in our hearts, and God overcomes our rebellion and brings us into faith. And so this is where we get the term monergism. Okay. Synergisms working together. You know, if you've worked in a corporate environment, synergy. Sure. God, I'll work got to take our energy, like sync it up, and that's synergy working together. So uh, the Christian perspective um, on salvation is that it's monergistic. God saves sinners. Um, It's not sinners saving themselves, but it's like God saves sinners. That fallen man cannot embrace the gospel on his own. We can't. We don't have the capacity to hear it. Here's what it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that's 1 Corinthians 2.14, that humankind left to our own devices, we are unable to accept or understand the things of God. And so uh, this isn't God's problem, it's our problem, that we, being sinners by nature, are, are stuck, we're unable to get it. And so... <clears throat> monergism, meaning God acts 
on his on his own to justify us or to save us from hell. This is Romans three ten and twelve. As is written, no none is righteous, no not run, all turn aside, together they become worthless, no one does good. We just talked about that. Romans eight seven, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. So um, we are resistant to God. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I'll raise him up on the last day. <clears throat> this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So repentance and conversion and faith are things that are granted by the Father. Hmm. Um, so this this whole idea of salvation as gift, another way to translate the word grace is or charis is gift. Another way to translate the word grace in Hebrew is favor. That it's gift or this favor. We got to understand this. Well, and one of my favorite pictures combining these two ideas of the the deadness from our inability and the the call of the conversion is the picture of Lazarus, yeah. right? Where Jesus in John eleven, you know, his friend Lazarus has been dead long enough that the body stinks. And he says, move the stone. And they're like, what is this guy, crazy? And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And that's not a request. <laughs> that is a command. And it is actually in the in the calling of Lazarus that Lazarus becomes alive. right? It is the, the word of Jesus, the call of Jesus, that in a sense, Jesus like creates what he commands. And yes. uh, Lazarus is this picture, I think, of everyone who has come to faith in Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were that valley of dry bones. What does a dead man need? He needs life. And it is God's call, God's gospel news that he awakens us by the spirit and brings us to faith in him. Yeah. I want to come back to the idea that God creates what he commands. And um, I think it's just beautiful. The fact that even thinking about salvation as creation is Mm. a big deal. Uh, We actually don't see in the Bible um, what it says like why God uh, created all things. We do see why he saves people. Mm. And so in the book of Isaiah, it says God created, he's speaking to Israel, says, I created you for my glory. But that idea of creation as salvation, that salvation's always being invited into new creation. Yeah. Like God is doing a new thing and salvation is being included in that, is God is always creating, even in saving, that there's no like non-creative work that God does, that even his saving work is creative work. So going back to like this idea of the gift of salvation, we see this in Philippians one twenty nine. So this is, uh, it has been granted to you or gifted to you or graced to you that for the sake of Christ Jesus, he gives us two things that you should believe in him and also suffer for his sake. So grace is a, grace gifts us or we're granted the capacity to believe, Philippians one twenty nine, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith in this, uh, the faith is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So uh, the faith and the saving is a gift, the whole thing. It's not just that uh, we are saved through faith, which we we did it, but it's the faith itself and the saving itself is a gift. Second uh, Timothy 2, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant or gift them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth. Part of the reason we want to be kind to people is that grinding them in order, like, or trying to like hard sell them or close the deal, trying to get them to be converted is silly because 
God might grant them repentance that leads to knowledge of the truth. And so repentance is a gift, the capacity to turn from evil and knowing the truth. It's not like you can't read a book and know the truth, that God softens our heart and opens our eyes and we know the truth in response to people's preaching. So see that? And then here's the last one, Acts 16. Oh, I read this one. Yeah, about Lydia. Yeah, Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what um, Paul said. So this, this whole idea of God creating what he commands, I want to come back to that, which I think is a great deal. So is this a New Testament thing? Is it an Old Testament thing? I, I really like how in the book of Deuteronomy, so if you think about the way the Bible functions, is you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the five books, which are kind of the, the foundation of the whole salvation story, that God first calls a people, first shapes people, first sends a people, and that's how it works. And so in Deuteronomy 10, God commands them to circumcise their hearts. Now, circumcision is meant to be a picture of a devotion. So it's meant to be this, uh, this understanding. So obviously you can't circumcise your heart. There's no foreskin on your heart. You can't take that literally. Right. If you try to open your heart and cut a piece of foreskin off it, you would die pretty quickly. Um, yeah. But this idea that um, circumcision is a picture of devotion from your intimate parts. So uh, this being devoted to the Lord in your intimate place, intimate parts, that's where circumcision comes from. Circumcise your hearts, meaning be committed to the Lord from your heart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says he's talking about uh, the future uh, state, the, the that which is to come. He says, the Lord will circumcise your hearts. So he commands, circumcise your heart. Then he says, I will circumcise your heart. <laughs> okay. He goes, you must do this. I will do this for you. Yeah. And so that's the idea of he commands what he creates. But then he, um, we also see this in, in Ezekiel 18.31. Make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Ezekiel 18.31. Then Ezekiel 36.26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Mm. Yeah. Meaning he's calling us to do what is impossible knowing full well that he will do it on our behalf. Hmm. Uh, Lazarus, come out, right? He, yeah. he creates the life. Get up, walk, come on out of here. Yeah. Lazarus is not like dead going like, yes, sir. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. it happens. New life is given. Um, Ephesians 5, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, Christ will shine on you, that we can't awake ourselves. Yeah, there's a little uh, rhyme. I've heard it attributed to John Bunyan. I don't know if that's right, but... Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great picture of that. You know? Can you say that again? Yeah, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's Jesus in John 3. You must be born again. Yeah. And then Peter, after being born again, says to the church, God caused us to be born again. Yeah. Like this whole idea, this is the idea of regeneration, that God has caused us to be born again, that we are regenerate, that we are born again, born the second time, that you don't, uh, it's kind of, you don't congratulate a baby on his birthday. <laughs> sure. You congratulate the mother because she yeah. caused the birth, like right. she did the work. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there might be some cultures that congratulate the baby and that's kind of silly, but and I haven't shown them all. Yeah. So um, John Murray said this, coming to Christ is the movement of commitment to Christ, coming that enages the whole soul activity of the person coming. It is not that he may come, not that he has the opportunity to come, not that he will in all probability come, 
And not simply that he is empowered to come, but that he will come. There is absolute certainty. There is divine necessity. The order of heaven ensures the sequence that when Christ bids a man come and die, they do. When he calls them to have new life, he does. When Jesus says Lazarus come forth, it happens. All the Father that all that the Father gives to the Son that he draws to him, he comes and it happens. And so that's conversion. It's the gift of faith and repentance. It is um, being born again. It is newness of life. And we require that gift of conversion because we are fundamentally unable to save ourselves or regenerate ourselves or give ourselves faith and repentance. Yeah. We talked about a couple of the, I don't know, objections or questions that uh, good faith people have asked about, you know, a total inability. What are some of the, the things you're bumping into with folks related to this part about conversion? I, I think the big one is a psychological experience. Like people go like, I, but I chose God. It's like, yes, you did. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, you mentioned earlier, right? You chose God, but something happened before. Yeah. And so conversion is actually what happened before. Yeah, I remember. Conversion is less about the, the moment you chose and more about the moment God awakened your heart. Yes. The capacity to choose is the gift. So I'm, I must choose God every day. I've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. We can sing that song and not scoff at it at all because we really decided to follow Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the question is, how did I come to the ability to decide to follow Jesus in the first place? How did I recognize my sinfulness and my need for a Savior outside of myself? How was I given or delivered the capacity to, with sober eyes and clear head, go, Christ crucified is my salvation? When that's a stumbling block, to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You talk to some, like talk to my atheist or agnostic friends, like Christ crucified. Are you nuts? I'm like, yeah, I understand. It is folly to you. It must be until Christ softens your heart and opens your eyes. And so when so many people who are followers of Jesus, it's not like they surrender to Christ the first time they ever heard about it. Yeah. Usually it's resist, 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 resist. Oh, I love him. (laughs) You know? And it's like, well, something changed, right? And what changed wasn't that you got smarter, and it wasn't that you got more moral or more righteous. It's that God awakened your heart. Yeah, I think about even my experience of, like, when I went from being a non-Christian to Christian, I was hearing the same message I'd heard 700 times. I was at a camp, sitting there, and the guy was preaching. And all of a sudden, in my heart, I went from being information that were, like, it was like a class that I had to get the information right. To feel like, oh crap, this is true and it's about me, and I need to repent right now. Mm. Wow! And it, it it felt like a ton of bricks got dropped onto my heart, and all of a sudden, what was just purely information went to like this deeply personal. This is not out there information. This is in here information. This is affecting me, and God did this for me, and I and I see it and I sense it and I grasped it, and it was not a whiff of new information. It was just something in my heart changed. I heard it afresh in a new way. Yeah. And I learned nothing new that day. And in the same sense, I learned everything for the first time that day. Yeah. Are there other questions you've, you've encountered people have related to this? One I've heard is, uh, about the timing, you know, something, well, how long before? So if God awakened my heart, you know, did it happen at the same time that I then came forward or, you know, was there like, you know, I was born again at a heart level, you know, and then a week later I made a profession of faith. You know, sometimes people will try to uh, 
parse that out? Is you know, is there anything to that? Or yeah, the theologians talk about the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. Like, what exactly is the chain of events here? And I think some of the best reformed theologians, like Herman Bavink, who I think is the best theologian in the last couple hundred years at least, basically says that like the, trying to get down to like the nanosecond prior to or whatever is folly. What, yeah. we, what, what Christians need to be able to grasp is you had a dead heart, then you had an alive heart, and basically instantaneously you went from um, being the dry bones in the valley to being woven together by the Spirit of God into a new creation. Yeah. And so exactly trying to nail down the timeline or order of events is uh, ultimately folly, but what Christians ought to confess is uh, I was awakened. Uh, it was... Seth come forth and I came forth. It was Luke come forth and he came forth. It was, uh, you must have a circumcised heart and then God circumcised my heart. It yeah. was, and so, uh, so yes, I chose him. Yes, he chose me. And probably those happened basically instantaneously. Uh, yeah, at some point God reaches into the little vulture heart and gives him a new heart that likes salad. <laughs> and so now he chooses the salad, but it's because he's now able to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which that illustration is so sad cuz now you're eating salad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should we should flip it around the deer or something, yeah, you know, who becomes a carnivore. Yeah, that would be, be a little more fun. The poor rabbit is destined to eat carrots its whole life until finally it gets a new oh, heart and it, and it gets to eat brisket for the first time. So Yeah, so that's those are the two big ideas. So going back we have inability or depravity or total depravity, pervasive depravity. Total inability, I think, is the uh, best way of talking about that. Because we're not just talking about sin in general. We're talking about sin with regards to capacity to give self-salvation. Well, yeah. And this, you know, I I think of one more. There's a little book by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And uh, in it, he says, you know, there's two ways that you know that this is true. Because everybody, no matter how much you argue against these two points we've just talked about, about inability and conversion, he said everybody still thanks God for their salvation and prays for the conversion of other people. Yes. And you just wouldn't do either of those things unless you at a heart level just had an instinct that this did not come from me. This came from God. God awakened me. So I thank him. God has the power to awaken my friends. So I pray for them. And, uh, he, he has this great line where he says, you know, on their feet, men may disagree, but on their knees, everyone agrees. God is sovereign. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And, this is part of the reason why we glory in God is his magnificence and his capacity and desire to overcome our resistance to his grace and to give us new hearts. And so we're thankful for that. And what I hope it makes us humble. I mean, that that's one of the, I think, legit critiques of the Reformed tradition is the people have encountered a lot of pretty arrogant, prideful folks. And that just feels so out of place with this doctrine. It feels really incongruent. It feels like if we really believe that we were totally unable and God had to awaken us, then there should be no boasting. There should be no smugness. There should be no superiority. It really should be humility and, and graciousness. Oh, yeah. And it, what's ironic is the form tradition is known as like this intellectualist camp that people are kind of snuffy and well-read, which kind of betrays the whole heart of this thing. Which right. Is, it's not like we read more books and now we're saved. It's not we... When God had a PhD in spirituality and now we comprehend the things of God, that's Gnosticism. That's not even Christianity. Yeah. 
And so I'm sure that people have experienced me as that kind of arrogant, smug person over the years and probably some more recently than I'd like to admit. But I think when you really revisit these doctrines, the actual outcome would be prayerfulness and humility. Yeah, You see that God wants to respond to our prayers and it's ultimately on him to soften hearts. And we see that it was ultimately on him that he softened our heart. And yeah. so there's no room for boasting whatsoever. Yeah. Well, we are going to um, have uh, a couple more uh, episodes, perhaps at least one more, uh, maybe maybe more than that, about these uh, topics of the doctrines of grace. And um, our hope is that it's helpful. If, if you're frustrated so far, my encouragement would be just hang in there. Um, if you have particular questions, I mean, we, we're doing this for our church at Redemption Gateway. So if you have questions, uh, you can email Seth or myself, and um, we could try to answer those in some upcoming episodes because um, we do want to help this be as helpful as possible. Um, but yeah, man, uh, Seth, thanks for your uh, thanks for your work on this today. Anything last encouragements? No, stay in the game. Keep praying for your friends that don't know Jesus. Yeah, great. All right, gang. Well, we will see you next time, and uh, have a great day. <laughs>